Good morning, church. How are you guys doing this morning? Are y'all awake? Are y'all ready? Are you sure? All right, let's do this. Hey, my name is Daniel Norris. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. As that incredibly good-looking woman that was up here early, all, earlier already said, some of y'all are like, oh my gosh, where are we at? If you're a first-time guest, we're so glad that you're here. Um, we are honored to have you here with us today. You can stop by Next Steps desk out there if you didn't stop by one of our tents, and we would love to connect with you and get you a gift. By the way, that was my wife that was up here just a few minutes ago, just in case you're wondering. So we're going to have some fun this morning as we wrap up this series that we've been in over the last several weeks in the book of Philippians. We've been in Philippians chapter 1, kind of walking through that from verses 11 through 26. Today we're going to be looking at the last four verses in chapter 1 where Paul is talking to the church at Philippi. So as we wrap up this series, I think it's important for us to understand some context. I want to remind you this morning, before we just dive in, uh, where this all began, how this thing happened, and who it is that Paul is writing to in Philippians. In Philippians, we see that Paul is writing to the church that was born in Philippi. It's a church that he actually planted on his second missionary journey. And we see that in the book of, not Philippians, but in the book of Acts. In Acts 16, if you've never read it, man, I would encourage you to go back and read it because I've read it several times, but I read it again this past week. And it's one of those stories that never gets old. It's one of those stories where as you read it, you're just like, your mind is blown by the reality of what God did. You see the church in Philippi was an incredibly diverse group of people. I mean, these were not your normal East Texas Bible Belt church people. These people were as far removed from that as you could ever imagine. In Acts 16, you see that Paul wakes up in the middle of the night. He has a vision and God says, hey, I want you to go to this city. The city is in Philippi. He said in his vision, there was a man calling out to him saying, I need you to come to Philippi um, and help us. So Paul and Silas get up and they go. The first few days there, they go to this place to where they think everyone's going to gather to worship on the Sabbath. And uh, at that morning's worship service, Paul encounters a a young woman named Lydia. Everybody say Lydia. Lydia. Lydia, she was a baller. She was a CEO She's what I call a uh, fashionista. Says that she was a dealer of purple garments, which means that she is a successful entrepreneur. She's a very wealthy, successful businesswoman. Says that Lydia was a God-fearer. Says that she believed in a God. She feared and had reverence for God, but she didn't really know God. You know what I'm saying? That Paul, in this moment, preaches the gospel to Lydia Lydia hears the message of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and she responds to it. She gives her life to Christ. She's baptized, and then she says, hey, I need you boys to come with me to my house and tell everyone at my house what you just told me. And so they go, and they preach the gospel to her entire household. Everyone in Lydia's house gets saved, and they all get baptized. Then Paul and Silas leave Lydia's house. They're walking down the street, and there's a demon-possessed girl who's a slave, so that means these these guys own her. She's walking around and she's harassing Paul and Silas. And then Paul finally, it says says this in the scripture, it says that Paul was greatly annoyed 
None of y'all ever get greatly annoyed, do you? says that Paul's finally had enough and he looked at this girl and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, come out of her. And he cast the demon out. The girl falls down. She gives her life to Christ. Well, the guys that own this girl, they're ticked. They're like, you just interfered with our way of making money. That girl is our property. She belongs to us and we make money off of her. So these men seize Paul and Silas. They give them a beat down, a severe beating. They throw them into jail. And then Paul and Silas that evening in jail are, are assigned a Roman GI, a, a diehard, hardcore Navy SEAL, if you will. And they said, you stand guard, you watch them, you don't let them leave. If they leave, it's, it's your life. That's the way it worked in Rome. So at midnight, Paul and Silas are singing and praising, worshiping God. And it says that the earth trembles, there's an earthquake, the ground shakes, the door the shakes, the doors fly open, the chains fall off. The Roman guard is, a, is woke up by this disturbance. He runs in there thinking, They've all escaped. They're all gone. It's going to cost me my life. So he's about to kill himself. He's saying, I'll, I'll just end it now before the other guys come in here and end it for me. And Paul says, wait a minute. Don't kill yourself. We're still here. We didn't run. And it says, in that moment, something happened to this Roman soldier. It says that he falls down at Paul's feet. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus is the only way. He's your savior. And the Roman soldier gives his life to Christ. And he says, hey, I need you guys to come to my house. And I need you to tell my entire family what you just told me. The, entire, the Roman soldier's entire family comes to Christ and they're all baptized. This is the church at Philippi. They are the most eclectic, diverse group of people that you would ever imagine. They are not your A-team all-stars who you go, if I'm going to plant a church in Philippi, I want Lydia, I want a demon-possessed girl, and I want a Roman soldier. That would never be your top three list. But this is who God chose to use. And Paul invests in them. He loves them. He spends time with them. These three people's lives probably never would have had a reason to cross paths they would have never intersected except for the gospel. The gospel breaks through all of their differences, all of their diversity, and it, uni it unifies them together, and they all become the church in Philippi. Like I said, Paul loves these people. He has a relationship with Lydia and the slave girl and the Roman GI and their families. He spent a long time there with them. In fact, in Philippians chapter one, verse eight, Paul is opening up this letter that he's writing to them from a prison cell. And he says, as I think about you, he says, I yearn for you with all of the affections of Christ Jesus. Now, I know we don't use the word yearn anymore, but this is a serious love that Paul has for these people. When he says, I yearn for you with all of the affections of Christ Jesus, I want you to hear that. Because the love of Christ Jesus, all the affections of Christ Jesus are what led Christ Jesus to the cross. This is the love that compelled him to die in our place. And Paul says, I love you that way. I would rather die than live without you. That's how much I love you. See, Paul 
is like a spiritual father to these people. He loves them deeply and he doesn't know if he'll ever see them again because he doesn't know how this is all gonna end. Remember last week, Pastor Todd said that famous passage where Paul says, man, to live is what? Christ. To die is gain. Paul's in there going, man, I don't know what's gonna happen. If I live, it's all about Christ. If I die, I get to go be with Christ. But either way, I, I love these people. These are my friends. These are like my family. I want you to think with me for a moment, parents in the room, grandparents. I want you to think about what you would say to your children if you knew you were about to give them the last words that they would ever receive from you. Close your eyes right now. Just remove the distractions. I want you to think about this. If you knew that you would never see your kids or your grandkids or your loved ones ever again, and you had this one moment, this one opportunity to say something that meant something to them, to say something of great value to them, what would it be? I promise you, you would think long and hard about these words. These words wouldn't just be flippant. They wouldn't just be uh, about the weather. They wouldn't be about your favorite sports team. It wouldn't be about your son or daughter's hobbies. It wouldn't be about their career or the neighborhood they're living in or how much money they make. It wouldn't be about any of those things. No, I believe they would be words that you would give them to sustain them through life, through the good and the bad, through the ups and the downs. These words would be words that would strengthen them and give them courage in the face of adversity. These words would be words that would comfort them on cold, dark, lonely nights when they feel like they're all by themselves. These words would be words that strengthen them when they feel weak. These words would be words that matter most. And this is exactly what Paul is doing at the end of chapter one in Philippians. And this is what we're gonna see today as we wrap up this series. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter one if you're not already there. We're gonna be in verses 27 through 30, the end of chapter one. If you're there, say the Bible is true. This is what Paul says to Lydia and his friends in Philippi. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Would you pray with me? Father, would you give us wisdom? 
Would you help us to see what we need to see? Would you help us understand the things that we need to understand? Father, would you help us to know that these words are as true today as they were the day that Paul wrote them from that prison cell? Help us to see it clearly, help us to hold on to it, and help us to obey. It's in Christ's name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Everything shifts in this moment, in this verse. Most biblical scholars and theologians and people a whole lot smarter than I am, they would say this about verse 27. They would say Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 is the crux of the entire letter. In other words, it is the thesis statement. It is the main point of the entire book of Philippians. So when you think about the rest of the book of Philippians, if you read through chapter two, which we're starting next week, when you read through chapter two and chapter three and chapter four, everything else that Paul says from this point on can be directed right back to verse 27. Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Stand firm, right? Strive and suffer well. Everything that Paul says can be drawn right back to this verse. You see, Paul's heart as he writes to the Philippian church is this. Look at, look at what Paul says again. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word only that he starts with, that's to get their attention. That is... Paul, as the spiritual father, that is him holding up his finger to his spiritual kids saying, hey, listen up, look at me. I need you to hear what I'm about to say. None of you parents ever do that in the room, do you? Have any of you ever done that? Let me go and see see your hands. I do it all the time. So Lauren and I, I find myself doing this daily, multiple times a day going, hey boys, look at me right here. Listen up, Jack. Here's what I need you to hear. When you go in there, you better use your manners. You better say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no, sir, and please, and thank you. Am I clear? Yes, sir. Hey, look at me. I need you to act right before we walk in there. Don't be messing around. Here's my favorite one. You ready for this one? Hey, boys, look at me real quick. Yes, sir. Hey, what's your last name? Norris. That's right, same as mine, same as your mother's. Everywhere you go, whether I'm with you or not, guess what? You represent me. You represent your mother. Any of your parents ever tell you this? Every time I say this, I'm like, oh my gosh, I sound just like my dad. (laughs) Y'all had that moment yet where you're like, I've become what I never thought I would be. I'm my dad. Hey, I need you to straighten up. Hey. This is your last name. Remember, everywhere you go, you represent me. You represent our family. You carry the name Norris with you. You better represent well. This is Paul in this moment saying, hey, Philippians, Lydia, jailer, slave girl, look at me. Listen up. I need you to hear me on this. I need you to hear me. 
This verse holds incredible weight to it. I love how the Christian Standard Bible version translates this. It's on the screen. It says this. He says, hey, just this one thing. One thing I need you to know. It's this. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word, that phrase, manner of life, in the other version I just read, is translated as this. It is a, the word Paul used in the Greek that was for citizenship, citizens. That's why the CSB translates, translates it like this. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. At first glance, this may seem a little strange to you and me, but remember who Paul is writing to. Paul is writing to Lydia, to the slave girl, to the Roman guard, and to all of the other Christian Philippians that live there in Philippi. Now listen, Philippi was a Roman colony. Philippi was about 880 miles northeast of Rome. Rome was giving away land to a lot of their retired retirees and military people. So you could say it's kind of a, a, a military retirement town. The people that lived in Philippi, the citizens there, they took great pride in being a Roman colony. Their architecture looked just like Rome. In fact, Philippi is known as little Rome. The people in Philippi, the citizens in Philippi, they walked like Romans, they talked like Romans, they ate like Romans, they dressed like Romans. You wouldn't know that they took great pride in their citizenship as Roman citizens. They lived by Roman law and the citizens of Philippi held their head high with this truth and this reality that we are Roman citizens. We belong to Rome. There's great benefits to belonging to Rome. When Rome does well, you do well. But when Rome does bad, you do bad. Rome would protect its people. It would provide for its people. Rome was a powerhouse and in this moment, when Paul is writing this, he wants his friends in Philippi who are deeply ingrained as Roman citizens in a Roman colony, he wants them to know something. He wants them to know, he's saying this, he's saying, listen, I know you live in Philippi. I know it's a little Rome. I know you walk around with your head held high and your chest out as a great Roman citizen. But here's what I need you to know. You have a new citizenship. You've been given a new passport that you can hold high. You are now a citizen of heaven and that citizenship trumps your citizenship in Rome. That's why Paul says this. He says, you need to hear me on this. Live your life or let your conduct as citizens of heaven be lived out in a manner worthy of the gospel in other words, Paul's saying, listen, citizens of heaven live differently. 
Paul says, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I know that the word gospel gets tossed around a lot, especially in church world. So I don't want to make any assumptions right here. Let me remind you this morning what the gospel is. If we are called to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, don't you think it helps to know what the gospel is? Yes? Amen. All right. Yes. The key word in all of the gospel is this, substitution. Let me hear you say substitution. Substitution is this, Jesus in my place. That's the shortest way I can say this is what the gospel is. Jesus in my place. Let me hear you say that. Jesus in my place. You see, Jesus went to the cross not merely to die for you, but to die instead of you. You and I and every other person deserve to be nailed to the cross. Jesus didn't. He was perfect in every way. It was the judge of all creation ready to slam the gavel down and tell you that you are sentenced to death. You deserve to die for your sins. And in that moment, Jesus steps in your place and says, I'll take it for them. I'll die in their place. He took your place. He took my place on the cross and he died instead of us. That's the good news of the gospel. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life you and I were supposed to live and then he died the death that we were condemned to die. That is the gospel. So what does it mean then to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel? I mean, can Anyone ever be worthy of the gospel? Let me say this. No. Is Paul saying that somehow, some way, if you and I are really good church attenders, that we can be deserving of the gospel? Not at all. In fact, Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he would say it this way. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own works or this is not of your own doing. In other words, you can never deserve this. You can never work hard enough. You can never be good enough. You could do absolutely nothing to be worthy of the grace of God that was given to you through his son. He says, for it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. So living in a manner worthy of the gospel, listen, has absolutely nothing to do with you or me being worthy or earning anything, but rather it has everything to do with the worth and the weight. That's how that word could be translated, with the weight of the gospel, the price that has been paid for you. So here's what it is. It is us as kingdom citizens living every day in response to the sacrifice that was made 
and the price that was paid for us to be saved. I was thinking about this reality this week and I was reminded of one of my coaches growing up. Coach Callaway was one of my football coaches. He, uh, I, I had Coach Callaway from junior high all the way through high school. Um, Coach Callaway was a, is, a, is a close friend of mine, means a lot to me. Coach Callaway wasn't just my coach. Coach Callaway was also my friend Brent's dad. And Coach Callaway was also a neighbor of mine. He lived like three houses down. So I had a great relationship with Coach Callaway. Coach Callaway had a problem. When I was probably in ninth grade, Coach Callaway was diagnosed with a degenerative heart disease. And so no matter what he did, he, um, the medication, the treatments, none of those things was going to help. So they went in, they did surgery, they gave him a pacemaker and a defibrillator, knowing this is just a Band-Aid. Really, your disease is gonna continue to progress, and it's only a matter of time before you're gonna need a new heart. When I was off in college, my last year in college, it finally got to that point where they were like, man, you are, he had to retire early, you're sick, you're weak, there's nothing you can do, now we're gonna put you on the waiting list to get a new heart. So Coach Callaway goes on the list for a heart transplant and he doesn't know how long it's gonna take. He doesn't know when, doesn't know where, doesn't know how, but he gets the call one night at midnight after about a year of being on the waiting list. He gets the call in Odessa, Texas, where we lived. And he says, hey, they say, hey, where are you? It's midnight. He said, I'm at home in bed. They said, we need you to get to Dallas. We found the perfect match. So Coach Callaway gets up and they go to Dallas, get there as fast as they can. Early that morning, Coach Callaway receives a new heart. There was a 19-year-old basketball, college basketball player visiting his, his family, his cousins in, in Dallas, and he was, got out at midnight to pump some gas in his car and someone drove by and shot him and killed him. He was killed by drive-by shooting, but his heart was a perfect match for Coach Callaway. Coach Callaway received the heart, and it was probably six months after he had received the heart that I was able to go down to his house and, and, and when I came home and visit with him. And he said, Daniel, I, I feel so unworthy. He said, it's, it's tough. He said, I, I, I lie awake at night and think about this young man's life and the sacrifice that someone took his life and that because he died, I'm able to live. He said, I went to visit his mom and dad and it was the toughest thing I've ever done. He said, his mom put her head on my chest and listened to that heart. She wanted to hear her son's heart. And she looked at Coach Calloway and she said, man, make it count. I want you to live every day because you've been given a new heart and a new life. Don't let my son's death be in vain. So Coach Calloway said this to me, I'll never forget it. He said, man, Dan, every single morning when I get up, here's what I do. I put my hand on my heart and I feel that heart beating. And he says, from this moment, every single day, I'm gonna live in response to this. I'm gonna make it count. I've been given a new life. I'm so grateful about, because I've been, I've been given this new heart. And that's what Paul's saying to these Philippians. He's saying, listen, you were dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses, and Jesus Christ came and died in your place, and he's given you a brand new heart. 
Now, every day when you get up, I want you to put your hand on your chest and I want you to feel that new heart that you've been given. And I want you to live life on purpose as new citizens, as citizens of heaven, knowing that you belong to an eternal kingdom with a king that, is, that rules and reigns over everything. And this kingdom will never end. This is what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi. Paul wants them to know and he wants us to know how to live a life, how to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul says, there's a few things you need to know and here's how you can do that. The first one is this, if you're taking notes. He says, I want you to stand together. I want you to stand together as one. Verse 21, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Paul says, stand firm with one spirit, with one mind. Do you hear the singular focus of that statement? The Greek word for stand was a word that was used to describe warriors or gladiators linked up, feet firmly planted, not letting anything move them. This would have been very common for the Philippians. They would have known this imagery. They would have known exactly what Paul was saying. They lived in a Roman colony with Roman soldiers. These were warriors. They understood what it looked like when Rome stood firmly, soldiers locked and loaded, ready to go, shield in their hands, nothing moving them, nothing getting through. Paul's saying, as citizens of heaven, you need to stand firm like a warrior. You need to stand firm with your feet firmly planted in the gospel and you don't let anything move you from that position, but you don't do it alone. You have the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of other believers with you and you lock arms and you stand firm in one spirit and one mind. You see church, there is a supernatural unity that binds us together when we live a transformed life life by the gospel. You're saying, well, what do you mean? See, there's something powerful that happens when I see other believers saying no to the same things that I'm saying no to in order that we might say yes to Jesus. When I see other believers standing firm, it's being bold when it's risky, organizing their lives to prioritize the church and the people of God, sacrificing time and money to serve I'm drawn to that, listen, because it stands out. It sets us apart from the culture. And when we stand out together, unified by the gospel, here's what we do. We prove to the world and to the culture that the gospel is true in our lives. But the opposite is true as well. See, the culture and the world that we live in, they don't believe a lot about what we say about Jesus because they don't see any difference in our lives. They don't see us standing firm. They see us caving to the pressures and going along with the rest of the culture. See, these new Christians in Philippi, they found themselves in a bit of a predicament. The Roman emperor considered himself to be divine. He considered himself to be a god. And that meant he demanded that Roman citizens worship him. And so here these new Christians are 
Lydia and the slave girl and the, the Roman GI, and they're all learning this truth. They're all learning that there is no other God but the Lord God, that he is the only one who deserves our worship. They're discovering what it means to have no other gods before him. And so when Caesar demands their worship, they had to stand firm as citizens of heaven and say, we will not worship you. We will not bow to you. There is only one God and you're not it. You see the problem there? They're gonna end up just like Paul. See, unity in the gospel is essential to a life that honors Christ. When the culture demands our allegiance and our affections, we must stand together as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, remembering whose we are and that Jesus alone gets our worship. While we don't live in a kingdom where the emperor demands worship, let's be honest, we do live in a world where there are altars and idols of false gods all around us that are demanding our worship wanting our allegiance every single day. We live in a culture where what we believe isn't just seen as different. It's increasingly viewed as oppressive and evil and hateful. As the culture continues to draw dividing lines between us, listen church, we must be unified. We must be one church because we share in one spirit and one mind as citizens of one kingdom, we stand together as one. The next thing Paul says is this, if you're taking notes, number two is this is the second way you and I will live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We will not only stand together, but we will strive together for the sake of the gospel as well. Look what it says in verse 27. Paul says this, he says, I may, that I may hear of you and that you were standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving how? Side by side. Let me hear you say that. Side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, we not only stand together, but we move together. We advance together. Jesus calls us together and then pushes us outward together to advance the gospel. And we don't do this alone, we do it side by side. Growing up in West Texas, I spent a lot of time as a kid playing football. So when Paul says this, I immediately go, man, he's telling us to be a team. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Christian life is not a solo sport. The Christian life is not a playground. It is a battleground. And Paul is telling us there, you need to stand firm as with one mind linked up with other believers, but you don't just need to stay still. You need to move forward. You need to advance the gospel into enemy territory. You need to push back darkness with the light of the gospel. You need to keep on moving forward. I was thinking about the way a football team does this. 
there's 11 men on the field on offense or there's 11 men on the field on defense, but here's the reality. They all play different positions. They're all different shapes and sizes and builds, but they have one mission, one goal, and that is to advance the ball down the field, to move the ball down the field, or if you're on defense, to stop the other team from advancing the ball. But they all work together and they all move together as one. And this is what Paul is saying to us. In fact, the word, the original word there is athleteo, and it's where we get the word athlete. When Paul says this to these Christians living in Philippi, athletics was very common in their Roman culture, and they understood exactly what Paul was saying. He's saying, Listen, you're not in this alone. Teamwork makes the dream work. The only way you will ever advance the gospel into enemy territory is when you do it together as a team, as one church, one mind, one spirit, standing firm, striving together side by side. See, there's a huge difference in a church that has a bunch of pastors and ministers that do all the work and try to do this themselves, and then there's a church that does this together, collectively. And at New Beginnings, listen, we believe this. We believe that every believer is called. Let me hear you say that. Every believer is called. Uh, y'all, y'all, y'all gotta get with it here. Let me hear you say it like you actually mean it. Every believer is called. Do you believe that? You were called You are called just as much as I'm called. You are called by Jesus to be a minister of the gospel. You are called to push back darkness with the light of the gospel. You are called to move forward, to advance the gospel into the hard to reach places that may be in your neighborhood. You don't need me or Pastor Todd or Pastor George or anyone else to come and knock on your door and say, hey, I need you to go across the street and talk to your neighbor about Jesus. You don't need us to do that for you. You don't need us to say, hey, you're called. I need you to go across the hallway at work and talk to that coworker about the gospel. I need you to take them to lunch and have a conversation and share the love of Christ with them. You don't need us to do those things for you. We get to do those things together, amen? We get to advance the gospel. We get to work together as a team. We get to take the love and the message of Jesus to a dying world. And guess what? The world desperately needs it. They desperately need it. They need us as one church to stand firm and they need us to strive together side by side, taking the gospel to the most desperate places. The last thing Paul says is this. You're not only gonna stand together, you're not only gonna strive together, but you're also gonna suffer together. Look what he says, verses 29 through 30. He says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see, whether it's soldiers standing firm or athletes striving together, it will lead to a life of suffering. 
And I know this is not an easy one to hear. See, in the advancement of the gospel, you're gonna get beat up. Soldiers and athletes don't just walk away with no bumps and no scrapes and no bruises. There's gonna be casualties. There's gonna be hurt. There's gonna be suffering. There's gonna be hardship. There's gonna be heartache. You see, living a life worthy of the gospel means persecution. Let me just put it plainly. Anything done in this world for the sake of Christ will cost you something. Jesus himself says it will cost us. It cost him. Listen what Paul says in 2 Timothy. It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He doesn't say you might be. He doesn't say every now and then there's a good chance. He says, no, you will be persecuted. I know this is a hard one for us because listen, we don't like pain. No one wants to suffer. In fact, we will go to great measure to avoid it, won't we? We will do everything in our power to not experience pain, to not have to suffer. And that goes against the gospel. Listen, church family, we live in a culture where the only way to avoid persecution is to conform to the culture. You say, well, what do you mean by that? The only way you're gonna avoid persecution and hardship is if you just look and act and walk and talk and live like everybody else. If you don't stand firm, if you don't strive together, that's the only way you're gonna not experience persecution. But when you don't conform and when you stand for the gospel, you will experience persecution. Remember what Jesus himself said. He said, hey, look at me, disciples, listen. He said, when the world hates you, remember it hated me first. When the world persecutes you, remember, they nailed me to a cross. See, we serve a suffering servant. We live for a king who bled and died and suffered so that we wouldn't have to. He died in our place. There is persecution coming. Listen, when you stand on the truth that Jesus is God and he is the only way to heaven, there's persecution coming when you stand on the truth that the Bible is not just some outdated book, but it is the divine inspired words of God that he has given to us as a guide for our lives. There's persecution coming when you stand for the sanctity and the dignity of human life, born or unborn. There's persecution coming when you simply hold on to God's standard of marriage. The world is gonna look at you like you're the problem. They're gonna tell you that you need to get with the times, that you need to do it this way, that you need to be accepting of all this. And when you stand, they're gonna persecute you. 
You see, when we hold on to God's word, when we share the gospel, when we're courageous and when we're unapologetic for living our lives in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel, we're going to face persecution. But listen, that type of standing will bring suffering and it's gonna cost you something. In fact, Jesus himself said this. He called it this. He said, it's, it's taking up your cross daily. It is dying to self. It is losing your life in order that you might find it. It is counting the cost and saying, I'm all in. You died for me. How can I not live for you? I don't belong to this world. I belong to your kingdom. I'm just passing through. And so come what may, I'm standing firm. I'm striving forward and I will endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul goes on in verse 28 to say this. He says that when we do these things together for the sake of Christ, he says, it is a sign of our salvation from God, that God is with us. James chapter one, the brother of Jesus, says it this way. He says, listen, count it all joy, right? Count it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds or persecution or hardship or suffering, for you know that the testing of your faith produces something in you. It produces steadfastness. And James goes on to say, he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, just like salvation is a gracious gift from God to us, so is suffering. And I know that's foreign to us, but Paul says it in here. He says, for it has been granted to you that you not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Salvation and suffering are both gifts from God because suffering does something in us. Suffering refines us. Suffering matures us. Suffering makes us whole and complete, not lacking anything. And here's what suffering does most of all. It makes us more like Jesus. And that is the end goal in mind. That is what we are here for. That is what we're living for. That we would live in such a way that when all is said and done, when we've stood firm, when we've strived forward, when we suffered well, that we would look like Jesus. Church family, you, you may be here today, someone in this room may be here today, and you're going, man, this all sounds great. But you're going, man, I don't, I don't know how to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And here's what I would say to you. It's probably because you haven't received the gospel. See, you can't live something out if you don't have it. So if you're in this room today and you're going, man, I've never received Jesus in my place. 
I've never received that gift that God has offered me. And I want you to know it doesn't have to stay that way. Today can be the day that you receive a new heart. In fact, the scripture says that when we confess with our mouth that Christ is Lord, it says that we, when we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Christ is Lord, it says this, you will be saved. In the Old Testament, it says, I will remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. In other words, I'll make you brand new. I will give you a new identity and a new passport and I will make you a citizen of heaven. If you're here today and you say, I need that, then in a moment when I pray, here's what I need you to do. You just call out to God. You say, God, I am far from you. I am a sinner and I need a savior. And so I'm asking you to forgive me and come into my heart and make me new. In Jesus' name, let's pray, church. Father, would you hear the prayers of your people? God, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, if there's anyone in here that says, I've never received the gospel, I've never understood what it meant to be saved, but today when Pastor Daniel said, the gospel is this, it is Jesus in my place, then today I heard that for the first time and I'm ready to receive it. I want Jesus in my life. I want to receive the gift of his love, his salvation. If you're here and that's you, you just call out to him and let him save you. For the rest of us, church family, here's what I want us to do. I want you to ask yourselves this. Am I living in a manner worthy of the gospel? And if not, why not? What idols and false gods and other things have I allowed to creep in to dethrone God of his rightful place in my life? And today, may we confess, may we repent of those things, may we remove them, may we dethrone those false gods and false idols in our lives in order that God might be seated on the throne, that he might be number one in our lives. So if that's you, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to challenge yourself today before you leave this place. Ask yourself the hard questions. Am I living in this way? Would anyone outside of church know that I belong to heaven, that my citizenship is in heaven? Do they see anything different in my life? Is there any evidence? Is there any proof? And if not, just confess. Say, God, I, I don't wanna live this way anymore. You died for me, I wanna live for you. And he will give you the power to stand firm to strive together and to endure suffering.